Let's turn to First uh, John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. Glad we're here. First John chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come this morning. We, we need to hear from Christ. We need to hear by your spirit through your word. We need to receive fresh manna from heaven. We, we know that the word says man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. As Christians, we have to hear the word of God. Even if we get away from your word, we know where to come and where to feed. And so we ask, Lord, that in this passage, as we are contemplating, sharing, hearing the word preached, Father, would you free my mouth and my mind to rightly proclaim your son's glory. And Father, may we be warmed with affection for Christ again if we've been cold. May we be uh, set aflame to serve him and to love him. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. As I uh, preached at my grandmother's funeral a few years back, probably 10 years back already, I contemplated her life. Uh, she was widowed with four kids during the war, World War II, in uh her husband went to the factory, and then the factory blew up, and they never even found his body. So she remarried when she, and you, you got to understand, this is World War II, and she's widowed with four kids. It's not a time to be widowed. If there's, ever, there's never a time to be widowed, but man, during World War II, she remarried uh, my grandfather. She had seven more kids. That's, that's common, right, in the Philippines. I thought about her spiritual condition before she belonged to a cult, a strongly false teaching religion. They taught that Jesus was created by God, the Father. Three of her first four kids are still entrenched and high-ranking in this cult, even to this day. I remember when the gospel first broke through in her later age. My father shared the glory of Christ, and she was saved. As I preached during this funeral, I, I had to make a clear distinction because I didn't want to simply preach the Bible because they claimed to hold to the Bible, but I had to preach the distinction of the Christian faith. What sets up us apart? Why do we believe the text? And so as I preach, I had to make clear this distinction of what she believed before while under the influence of the cult and what she believed right when she died, which was a saving faith in the fully human, full deity of the person of Christ. And as I saw the gospel firsthand take root in her life, I also saw the gospel be rejected, leading to spiritual death. I saw that my aunt, who rejected the biblical teaching of the full humanity and full deity of Christ. She just simply could not handle it. This was my sweet aunt who used to always feed me and welcome me. Simply got up and left in disgust. On the one hand, I saw someone ushered into eternal life, my grandmother. And on the other hand, I saw someone who was spiritually dead, my aunt. You can say... It was really an odd thing. I saw my grandma's dead body in a coffin, and I saw my aunt walk away. You can say that my grandma, who was physically dead, she was spiritually alive. And sadly, you can say that my aunt, who was physically alive, was spiritually dead. See, your view of Christ is the, your view of Christ is the answer to the most important questions in the universe. The absolute most important questions 
to the universe. And I'm not just saying, why are you here? Why do you exist? That is answered in the glory of Christ as well. But what is God like? Am I in right standing with God? If not, how can I be? What happens when I die? All those questions are answered in Christ. And you cannot have this question wrong. You will have, if you have this question wrong, you will be lost forever and ever. Please listen, this is serious. In 1 John chapter 5, it talks about, and what the sermon is about, is God's solid case for Christ. God's solid case for Christ. As if God needed a case, He doesn't need to defend anything. He doesn't need to prove anything, and yet He does. He does for our edification. He does for our benefit. And he does for the judgment of the world. I call it God's solid case. Uh, because I believe that this passage, John, 1 John chapter 5, let's read it. Verses 6 to 12 we're going to read. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I believe that God gave this passage this morning so that you would wholly trust in the unique God-man, Jesus Christ, for your salvation. He gave this passage so that you would wholly trust in the unique God-man, Jesus Christ, for your salvation. I say God-man. I say that on purpose because that is part and parcel with who Christ is. And that is what John is proving. This is what John is stating. He's saying it's not just that you have this idea of Jesus, that he is some good itinerant teacher, that he is a prophet. No, we claim him to be the God-man. Fully God, fully human, forever connected, even in the heavens. And so, this is what the Bible is teaching, and this is what God is proving, and this is God's case for it. Now, the Apostle John gives you three reasons to trust in Christ for salvation. He gives you three salient reasons to trust in Christ. He says, first, believe in God's unshakable testimony. The reason why you should trust in Jesus Christ as the God-man for your salvation is because of God's unshakable testimony. God's own testimony of the truth of His Son is unshakable. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be dismantled. He uses courtroom language. It's an open and shut case. It is true and undeniable. God's case for Christ centers all around this term we see here in John chapter uh, 5. He says in verse 6, he uses this term, it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 7, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this. Verse 10, the testimony in himself. Uh, further on, 
he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And then verse 11, and this is the, and the testimony is this. And so part of a way to determine what the meaning of a biblical text is, of what is it about, is to notice what is the repetitions. What are the words that are constantly repeated? And we can say, if you, even if you have NAS or ESV, it is this word testimony. It is this word witness. Now, God's case for Christ all centers around this term, this word witness or testimony. In the Greek, it's the same. It could take on the verb form or it could take on the noun form. It means to bear witness. It means to declare, to confirm. The word comes from the root. It's from the, uh, the word group martureo. Martureo in the Greek means to bear witness, to testify, to confirm the facts. But it's later on, it became the word where we get the word martyr. And what probably occurred is that as Christians in the first and second century under the persecution, as they bore witness, as they bore testimony to the Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ, as they bore witness to that, they were killed for their faith. And so that word martyreo not only came to mean witness or testimony as it is here in the text, but in our usage, we even use it for someone who dies for something that they believe in. Right? And so what God is saying here is he is bearing testimony of his own son. And he is proving who his son is. And fundamentally, it is his composition, if you could use that word. It is his substance. What is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And he's going to prove that he is the God-man. So believe in God's unshakable testimony. And he gives the specifics of his witness. The specifics of his witness. In, in verses 6 through 8, he says, this is the one. Who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Uh, emphatically, he's saying, he could have just said the one Jesus Christ, or he could have said Jesus, but he's saying, this is the one. He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the one who John has felt himself. You have to remember in the background of what is in the text, of the occasion of why John wrote it, he is writing because they are doubting that Jesus was really God. They are doubting that God would actually take the form of a man. They are doubting that. And so what they used to believe is that Jesus would come and he came during his baptism and the Spirit of Christ came and fell on him during his baptism. And then right before he died, that the Spirit of Christ left because there's no way that God would succumb or allow himself to die. And yet John says emphatically, that's exactly what happened. And he starts out with these, the specifics of this witness. There are three witnesses. Three witnesses. He says here, the witness of Jesus' ministry. The first one is the witness of Jesus' ministry. Now, there are three symbols that John is using to describe Jesus and describe this unshakable testimony. And he starts out with the witness of Jesus' ministry. And I get that from the word water. Okay? We get that from the word water. Now, there are many misconceptions of what this means. If you notice in 1 John, he says, this is the one, Jesus, who came by water and blood. Not with water only, but with water and with the blood. Now, there are many misconceptions about what this means, water and blood. Okay? And the way you understand biblical text is you don't just pick any definition that is out there okay, and just kind of put it into the text. You look at how the context reads it and you look at how John uses those words. Okay? And so... What John is saying is that it is about Jesus' ministry. Now, here are some misconceptions. Here are some misconceptions. Some people, when they see the word water and blood, they think that 
This is talking about Jesus' humanity. This is talking about when Jesus was born and as a pregnant woman, her water would break and blood would flow as well. And Jesus came through that. But that is nowhere in the context. Okay? The context is saying this is God's testimony. If you notice, he says here, um, if we receive the testimony in, the testimony of God is greater, verse 9. For the testimony of God is this. He has testified concerning his son. So the way we understand what water, blood, and spirit mean is the way it's going to be used here. Verse 9 determines it. That it's going to be God's testimony of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he, that he is the son of God. Some people think that the water and blood is the lethal injury from a Roman spear. If you recall in John chapter 19, 34, instead of breaking the bones of Jesus, they didn't break his legs as he was hung on the cross. One of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and immediately there came out blood and water. That here is not the context as well. Uh, we believe that the Roman spear was used to come up through the rib cage and to poke into the heart where the pericardial sac was. And this is scientifically proven. This is uh, as, the, as the spear stabs the pericardial sac, it has the view and it has the look of water coming out. It ensures death. So as the, as the Roman soldier speared Christ, water and blood flowed. But that's not what the context is saying. It doesn't speak of Jesus' deity at all. Thirdly, some people believe that it is a, an idea of Christian baptism and of communion. Again, that's, there's no context. Christian baptism and communion, although very important, the reason why we do baptism and communion is because it is the church's witness of Christ, not God's. It's our witness. Do you remember it says? And every time you do it, you are declaring his death when you have communion. So what I think to be the biblical view of what water and blood is this, that water is Christ's baptism and blood is Christ's death. And these are the two major events that mark the work of Christ. When he first started his ministry publicly, do you remember as Jesus, uh, as Jesus was in the River Jordan, John the Baptist was calling all to repentance and to a baptism of repentance. And, John, and Jesus comes. And after he is uh, baptized, the dove comes on, uh, the spirit comes on him like a dove. Not as a dove, but like a dove. And it says that that's when his ministry started. Um, so he says here that, that the, the blood and the water become the two bookends of Jesus' whole ministry on earth. The water marks his public ministry on earth. The blood marks his earthly ministry and ends his earthly ministry on earth. Right? Now, we know that this water baptism, we, we see, if, if you recall, John the Baptist he is calling folks to be baptized as a sign of repentance. But he says that there is one who is coming who he is unworthy to untie his sandals. And you imagine John the Baptist is coming and he is baptizing people as a symbol of their new life in the Messiah who is coming. And he sees across the way his own cousin. Remember, John the Baptist is the cousin of Christ. Right? And he sees him, and he doesn't say, hey, cousin, give me a hug, right? God tells him that he will see finally who he really is. And John sees Christ as he comes forward, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Christ comes, and we see an account in Matthew chapter 3 
And you have to see this in Matthew chapter 3. Notice, as, Matt, as uh, Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 14, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John tried to prevent him. Why do you think he was trying to prevent him? Because he knew who Christ was. John was preaching a baptism of repentance. Christ doesn't need to repent. Right? He's saying, no, you don't need to do this. And yet, Jesus calls all folks to be baptized. And he does not call us to do something he wouldn't do himself. In fact, he had to do it to fulfill every righteous requirement for us. And now he says here, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered, said, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I have to not only die on the cross, I have to live a perfect life. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sins, but he not only did that, he gave us his perfect righteousness. That's why Jesus had to live perfectly. That's why Hebrews says he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. And so as Jesus is marching into, you got you to gotta imagine this. Jesus is putting his feet into the Jordan. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And you notice the Spirit of God. He is not a dove. Don't, please don't say the Holy Spirit is a bird. Okay? He's not a bird. It was like a dove. It, was, it had probably in John the Baptist's mind as he saw him, it was an indicator of who this Messiah was. So the Holy Spirit is there. The Son of God is in the water. And now, God the Father in front of everyone after he has gone down in the water it says here, and behold, a voice. Now, you got to understand. This is not, he spoke through a person. This is not, he used a prophet. This is not, he had a megaphone. A voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the father is testifying personally of the grandeur of the majesty of of the Son of God in a river. And as we dwell upon that, he calls you to understand the significance of what's happening. That God has come in the flesh to save you. And this is such a miraculous thing. This is such a stupendous thing. All of history is now changed into B.C. and A.D. when Christ came. That God himself, the Father, declares the righteousness. Declares he is my son. And declares that everything he does pleases me. He has not sinned. He will never sin. His, his desire to honor and to submit to me, even though being co-equal with me, pleases me. The Father by the water, testifies of the Son. Secondly, we have the testimony of the blood. That is, so first we have the witness of Jesus' ministry and his life. That is the water. Now we have the witness of Jesus' death. That is the blood. That is the blood. And they act, as we said, it is the two end caps of his whole uh, ministry here on earth. I can tell you how God the Father again bore witness of Jesus, his own son, to tell the world. You ever notice that some folks will say, you know, if I saw Jesus myself, I would believe. Or if 
I heard God from heaven, I would believe. You know, the Bible just doesn't bear that to be true. There are people in that crowd who heard the voice of God and yet still did not turn. They still turned their back on Christ. There are folks who have seen the miracles of Christ, even see him multiply the bread and the fish, and yet turn their backs on Christ. God himself is declaring who Christ is. Okay, This is not some liar on the, on the public stand. This is God himself. And yet people say, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's open to debate. It's open to interpretation. God is declaring himself. And there are different ways that God declared the witness or the testimony of Jesus' death at his blood. First, there was darkness. If you remember in Matthew 27, 45, if you want to re read that, after Jesus died, it says, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Secondly, there was the veil that was ripped. God the Father ripped the veil. The veil that separated us from entering into the Holy of Holies and from having a full relationship with God the Father. Jesus Christ himself freed us to do that. Now, Matthew 27, 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. There's countless Old Testament prophecies you could write down. Psalm 22, you could write down Isaiah 53. That is God the Father declaring His Son, witnessing and testifying to the fact of His Son. But there's one verse I think is, is very blatant that shows that God the Father bears witness to the Son's death. And that is in Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. But now, verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's saying, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And notice he says here in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly whom God displayed publicly okay not in secret okay that's what the cults do that's what the secret mystery cults did they said you could only know some information you can't know all the information that is not a mark of true Christianity true Christianity says you have a question we answer it through the scriptures okay True Christianity tells the truth right away. Whom God displayed publicly, right? Jesus, uh, God the Father publicly displayed, it says, as a propitiation, we know that word propitiation is to be a satisfying sacrifice for the righteous requirements of God, okay? That propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate, again, another showing verb. I display publicly. I demonstrate it. I let you know his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For, here it is again, the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God becomes the judge, and he justifies you, okay? He sets you free because of what Jesus has done. But you have to notice what he says here. What is the testimony of God the Father? The testimony of God the Father is that he publicly displays the violent, the vicious death 
not simply as an example of how to live, not simply of something good to, that Jesus did, but as a propitiation, as a payment for us, for you. And this is why we have to declare it. You see, when the cross gets obscured with tradition and with culture, and when the cross gets cloudied, and you could go to churches still, and they won't speak about these things, what God has talked about, that he declares openly, you can't know the gospel rightly. And sometimes you hide the gospel, and yet God calls us to openly declare. Now, thirdly, the witness of the Spirit's truth. I can say this, that the Another name of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. John 14 says that is the Spirit of Truth, 14, 17, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him and he abides with you and he will be in you. John 16, 13, but when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whoever Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, the main text here, and I'll read this just for the interest of time. Well, let's go there. John chapter 15. The Gospel of John in chapter 15. We got a little time. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we talked about this uh, even in our men's group about in verse 18, 18 to 25 about testifying about Christ and them hating you. And part of a fruit of salvation is that the world hates you when you declare Christ because you are his representative. Verse 26, it says here, notice he says, and when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. That is, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will submit to the Father. Okay? Whom I send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit, although God, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Son, His role in this whole economy of the Godhead is to testify of Christ, to give Christ the glory, to point to Christ, to illumine about Christ, to open your minds about Christ, so that when you read the Word of God, it is not merely an abstract idea, it's not merely black and white on the page. What happened when you got saved? Before you used to think this is a dry, dusty book that belongs on your grandma's table. But what happens is when you get saved, the spirit of truth shows you the glory of Christ. The helper comes and you read the text. And now you no longer say it's simply an abstract idea. It's simply, okay, there's this idea of Jesus. There's this idea of God. Jesus died on the cross for sins. And now you come to realize the truth of the matter. Jesus died for me. The spirit of truth did that. I already know when I preach the gospel and when I share the gospel, I am on a losing team. In the sense of, in myself, I cannot convince folks about the glory and the majesty of Christ. I already know that. I already know when I open my mouth that many of them are going to think I'm a fool. I already know that. Because John 15, 18 tells me. Okay? I already know 
that the world is spewing hate for Christ, that the world doesn't want Christ, that the world is attacking families, that the world is attacking gender roles, that the world is attacking everything that the scriptures teach. I already know that, but I know one thing to be true, that when the Holy Spirit shows up, you cannot stop his rhetoric. You cannot stop him when he reveals truth to the sinner. And when he does, it is beautiful. It's fantastic. It's undeniable. Because all of a sudden they grip to it. And God's spirit of truth reveals, testifies, exalts the Lord Jesus Isn't that amazing? Now, there's the superiority of his witness as we go back to 1 John. Now, why all this fuss about three witnesses? Now, if you notice, he calls it in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 8. He says, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, There are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. In an old Hebrew law, in the book of Deuteronomy, you could even write this, Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15. It says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, two being good, three being better, shall a matter be confirmed. So in, in the history of the Hebrew people, right, even in law, how do they prove something? Well, like we, I've got a witness. Well, that's not enough to have one witness. Well, I've got two witnesses. Okay, that's good. Well, I have three. And so they are all in agreement. Okay, All in agreement. Uh, sometimes if, you know, there's a mark on the wall or a dent or a hole in the wall, <laughs> and one child says it's this person, I might not believe it. If I've got four kids, so there's always going to be three witnesses. And one, another kid says, no, I saw that person do that. And I did too. Okay, there's some evidence stacking against them. And they shall meet the, the they might have some rear-end persuasion after that, right? But if there's three kids, oh, man, it's open and shut case, right? I already know what happened, right? I already know. And God says, this is my son. Believe in him. And I am telling you by his baptism, by his blood, and lastly, by the Spirit of God himself. So you'll know by these outside objective facts, but the Spirit now is going to tell you inside of you that what you are reading, that what you are seeing is actually the truth. Amen? Hallelujah? And that's, what, that's why you're sitting. I know that to be the fact that's supernatural, right? If you are here of your own accord, that's why you're sitting here, right? Now, the superiority of that witness, we also see that in Matthew 18. If you remember, if a brother is caught in sin, may there be two, like one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witness, every fact may be confirmed. That's not a verse that says if you pray and there's three people there, then Jesus shows up because... Jesus is with you. No, that's actually a confirmation of sin. Okay? So there, here, that's, that's the same thing, the same thing that is talked about. So that's God's guarantee in verse 9. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this. He has testified concerning his son. Now, secondly, embrace God's imperishable gift. Embrace God's imperishable gift. There's two points here. It is rich and it is exclusive. 
It is rich and it is exclusive. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. Embrace, embrace God's imperishable gift. Why should you believe in God's testimonies? Because first, it's unshakable. Secondly, because it grants an imperishable gift. And what do we call that? That's eternal life. Now, eternal life is not simply the duration, not simply the permanence of living forever. Contextually, eternal life is so much richer than that. It's not just the length of life. Many of you would choose to live 80 years in freedom differently than 100 years in jail, right? Many of you would choose that. Why? Because the life quality is different. Jesus is saying, God is saying, the apostle John is saying, that when you believe in Christ, the God-man who died on the cross for your sins, He's saying you receive this eternal life that is forever and that is rich forever. And what does the richness entail first? It's a promise given to you in John 20, 31 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you, believing you may have life in his name. It's an abundant life. In John chapter 10, 10, it says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and I came that they might have life. And have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He laid down his life for me. So that I can live this rich life now. And let me tell you. There is no life like the Christian life. There is no life like the Christian life. This is exciting and difficult all at the same time. I am sent to the heights and heights of happiness and joy, and I am sent to the, the lowest of lows in my sadness as well. The heights of when someone comes to Christ and someone is living for God and someone knows Jesus. There's nothing like it. Their life is changed and the Spirit of God opened their eyes. There is no, no other work I want to be in. When a young person says, I'm going to live for Christ. When an old person gets saved, when a dad, when a mom, when a family is reconciled, there is nothing like it. That is abundant living, brothers and sisters. That is rich living. Don't let the world dictate to you what a rich life is. That you got to live in that gated community. That you got to have that CEO position. That you have to have recognition. That you have to have accomplishments. That's not what God tells you is an abundant life. That my kids know Christ. That I'm walking with the Savior. That I know where I'm going when I die. Those, that is abundant life, brothers and sisters. Don't let someone lie to you. The abundant life, the eternal life is not only the richness of living with Jesus. It's also newness of life, it's called in Romans chapter 6 verse 4. We have been buried with him through baptism and death in order that as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may walk in newness of life. When I got saved, I, I, the only way I could describe it is I was seeing in black and white and now I see in color. I see it now. I see why man is at rebellion. I see how the glory of Christ. I see the wonder. I see why this book is so important. Why you have to drop everything for God. I see it now and I saw the ruin of my friends. They followed in their sin. They kept going and I was going with them. I was going right with them. I was following. And God saved me. And he gave me a new life. Is that true of you? Because if it isn't, turn to him. He loves you. He gave his own son. God gave his own son for you. But not only is it a new life in its richness, it is knowing God himself. John 17, 3. Go to John 17, 3. John 17, 3. Jesus is praying to his father. That's amazing. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Glorify your son. He's the only one worthy, right? No man can say this. Glorify, glorify me. 
We dare not say that, right? He says, glorify your son, and the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh that is mankind, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. Verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God. And in the same line as that. Did you see that? Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ. You have eternal life. Not just in the future. You have eternal life. Now. And this eternal life is that you could wake up even on a bad Monday morning. Look up into the sky and beyond the sky, there is a majestic creator. There is the, there is the God, the only sovereign, and he knows your name. And you could pray to him. You know him. This word here, we know the difference, right? This is not the word no for simply facts. This is the word no for experience. You actually know the mind of God through his word. Not out of the air, through his word. You know what he likes, what he dislikes, what he loves, what he hates. You know the mind of God. You have the mind of Christ. You have eternal life. And it is exclusive. Not only is it rich, but it's exclusive. And this life is in his son. It's in no one else. It's in no other religion. It's in no other place. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Which brings us to our next point. All this is in relation into what, to what you do with the Son of God. Lastly, rest in God's unchanging assurance. The last point, rest in God's unchanging assurance. There's two points here, the warning to turn, and then there's the confidence to move forward, the warning to turn. He says here, 10b, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. God himself, it's, it's like you're looking at God upon Upon his throne, and you say, you're a liar, God. You're a liar, God. Imagine the audacity and the wickedness, right? Because he has not believed in the, in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. He does not have the son of God, does not have in his life. If you are hearing these things, yield to Christ. Don't trust your heart. I know what Disney tells you. I know that. I know what the world tells you. I know what songs tell you. Trust in your heart. Believe in your heart. That could be, couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who could understand it? Your own heart lies to you. I was telling the guys, I was telling the guys in, um, as we were meeting in a men's group back there, and uh, I had said something to one of my daughters in a really rude and cutting way, and my wife was pointing it out to me, and I was defending and defending and defending and defending myself. I need to grow in Christ still. Okay. And as I kept defending, I started to think of this verse. I'm a liar. I am lying to my wife. I am lying to God. I'm doing this right now, and I know it. I'm just sitting back here defending myself. When are you going to grow up, Angelo? She's trying to love me and show me my sin. When are you going to grow up? And then... By the grace of God, he broke me, and I said, you're right. I'm in sin. I need to repent. Brothers and sisters, you've got to face that your worst enemy is not 
liberals. Okay? Your worst enemy is not ISIS. Your worst enemy is not even the devil. Your worst enemy is yourself. And you've got to fight this by the power of God and the truth of God. You have to allow him to break you. Because we try and say God is the liar. It's amazing. Now, the way you can apply this is not that now I call everyone a liar, but there, there's a self-examination, seeing what the Bible calls truth and examining yourself in the light of God's word. It's not a dead-end warning. He doesn't give this as simply to scare you and then leave you. He gives this to you so that you would turn to Christ. Turn to what God has said. Turn to the gospel, that God is a perfect being and he demands and deserves perfect righteousness. Man has fallen and has sinned against him. Every human being has an insurmountable divide between him and God. Everyone is born with this divide. This explains the sin in society and sin in your life. You could never in eternity pay the righteous debt you owe to God on account of your sin. Jesus, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, lived a perfect life died a righteous death in exchange for the debt debt sinners owe. If you trust solely in the life and death of Christ as your sole reason for a right standing before God, you will be saved. God is telling the truth. Now you have the confidence to move move forward, and I love this. He who has the Son has the life. He who has the Son has the life, and you can bring this to the grave. You could bring it through the fog of trials. You could bring it through the waves of attacks upon you. You could bring this through your physical ailments. He who has the Son has the life. Christian, you have tasted of the sweetness of this new life. You have fellowship with the living God through His Son. You are assured of an imperishable inheritance in the heavens. You can look beyond the grave to an eternity with Him. You walk with Jesus, your master, your savior, your Lord, your counselor, your brother, your friend. Father, we just pray. We just pray. Thank you that you have given us all these things to trust in. Thank you you've given us your word. Thank you for all the numerous evidences of your son. Thank you for your son. Oh God, may we sing and delight and worship in your richness. In Jesus' name, amen.